Now, if you remember, yesterday the Buddha said to Potapada that it's very difficult for one of different views and different faiths under different influences with different pursuits and a different training to know whether perception is a person's self or not. So then, Potapada says, Well, Lord, if this question of self and perceptions is difficult for one like me, tell me, is the world eternal? So, I think he has a real um, um, similarity to us, doesn't he? I mean, so if it isn't one thing, okay, so about the self, well, let's forget it. So let's find out whether the world's eternal. And, um, and then he says, is only this true and the opposite false? The Buddha says, Potapada, I have not declared that the world is eternal and that the opposite view is false. <laughs> Potapada says, well then, is the world not eternal? And he says, I have not declared that the world is not eternal. Then he says, well, is the world infinite then, or is it not infinite? And he says, I have not declared that the world is not infinite and that the opposite view is false. Now, we have to remember that this is a typical Indian way of a debate, of question and answer. And there are ten points that Potapada brings up, and these ten points are called the ten undeclared points. The Buddha did not declare them. And he will come to, un uh, to an understanding why he doesn't declare them. They're, they're called, or they're called indeterminates, but undeclared points is clearer, isn't it? And these are, is the world eternal or not? Is the world infinite or not? Is the soul the same as the body or not? And then, does a Tathagata exist? not exist, both exist and not exist, neither exist nor not exist after death. Now that four-pointed question is a typical Indian debating system. Is it so? Is it not so? Is it both so and not so? And is it neither so or not so? It's um, a bit complicated, but that's the way which is very typical when you read any kind of debate between people. And it is considered by the scholars that this questionnaire, so to say, these ten points, um, were asked of um, ascetics and wanderers and any sort of spiritual um, persons or leaders to find out what their views were. So Potipada is uh, making this questionnaire now. He's given up on the self-question, although we will find later on in the sutta that Buddha comes back to it. It's uh, not done with yet. But at this point in time, Potipada has given up, and so he comes out with this questionnaire, with these ten points. And uh, the first one is about the world being eternal, then the second one about the world infinite or not infinite, then comes, is the soul same as the body, is it, or is the soul one thing and the body another? And the Buddha again says, I have not declared that the soul is one thing and the body another. And then he comes out with, well, that, the Tathagata is just another word for the Buddha. Tathagata, the one gone such, it's just another epitaph for the Buddha. Well, does the Tathagata exist after death? Is only this true and all else false? And the Buddha says, I have not declared that the Tathagata exists after death. And then he says, does he not exist? And does he both exist and not exist? And neither exist nor not exist. I have not declared that the Tathagata neither exists nor does not exist after death and that all else is false. In other words, the Buddha refuses to answer. So then, Puttapada says, But Lord, why has the Lord not declared these things? And now comes the answer, which is really of some um, purpose for us. Puttapada, that is not conducive to the purpose, not conducive to Dhamma, not the way to embark on the holy life, 
It does not lead to disenchantment, to dispassion, to cessation, to calm, to higher knowledge, to enlightenment, to nibbana. That is why I have not declared it. So, quite obviously, the Buddha says, I'm not going to talk about things which are not conducive to the spiritual path. They're not conducive to showing, showing us how we can get out of Dukkha. What possible difference can it make to Pradapada whether the world is eternal or whether it's infinite or finite? What possible difference can it make to his happiness whether the soul is the same as the body or not? And what possible difference can it make whether the Buddha exists after death or not? None of that will get him out of Dukkha. So the Buddha refuses to discuss these questions. And one can assume from the commentary that these questions are common. And not only that, there are some very nice explanations in some other suttas about this. And the first one that comes to mind is a sutta which, where the Buddha talks to um, a wanderer called Vachagota. Now, Vachagota is often mentioned in the suttas, and so one can remember his name. And uh, he was a wanderer of a different uh, faith, and he came to see the Buddha with exactly those questions. They are verbatim the same questions, namely, does a Tathagata exist after this? Does it, and the Buddha said no. And he said, does he not exist? The Buddha said no. Does he neither exist nor not exist? The Buddha said no. And then, does he both exist and not exist? And the Buddha said no. So what Shogata said, yes. But now, you have said no to all my questions. How am I going to understand that? And here, the Buddha gave an answer. And the answer is interesting. He said to Vachagata, go and collect some firewood. So Vachagata went and collected some firewood. He said, now, make a fire. And he made a fire. And he said, now, keep throwing some more sticks on the fire. So he did. And uh, the Buddha said, how is the fire going? Vachagata said, it's going very well. So then the Buddha said, all right, now stop throwing sticks on the fire. So he stopped. And after a while the Buddha said, and how is the fire going now? And he said, oh, it's going out. And then he had another look and he said, oh, has, it has gone out now. And the Buddha said, see, that's exactly what happens to the Tathagata. He said, where did the fire go? Did it go forward or backward? He said, no, neither way. It just went out. Did it go sideways to the right or to the left? And Vachagata said, no, it didn't. It just went out. And he said, well, did it go up or did it go down? He said, no, it just went out. It went out because there was no more fuel on the fire. The Buddha said, that's right, the Tathagata just goes out. There's no more fuel on his passions. So it is that which is the answer to this eternal question. And interestingly enough, this question is also asked very often today. Not in those words, obviously. We don't go around saying, does he exist or not exist? Does he neither exist nor not exist? We don't say that. It's not our way of talking. But there is this question, and there are all sorts of answers to that question by even certain traditions and certain um, countries that practice that have all sorts of ideas what happens to the Buddha. But the Buddha said quite clearly, just like the fire that went out. So, if there's no fuel on the passions, obviously, that which has appeared as mind and body goes out. 
just like the fire. And since he said that himself, we don't really have to kind of debate about that in our minds, even if we don't find somebody to debate with. We don't have to debate in our mind about it, because it's quite obvious. If there isn't anybody within that has the craving to exist, obviously, that doesn't arise anymore. For that question, although he doesn't answer Potapada, he did answer Vachogotta in that way. And the other thing, when he says to Potapada, I have not declared these things because they are not conducive to our purpose. There's a very um, interesting simile in one of the other suttas. The, the simile is this. A man is hit by an arrow and he collapses and he's actually on the point of dying so a doctor is called for and to help him to remove this arrowhead from his chest and the man won't allow it he has to first find out what the arrow shaft what kind of wood it's made of. Then he wants to find out what sort of poison is stuck at the end of the arrowhead. Then he wants to know what kind of feathers are attached to the arrow shaft. Are they goose feathers or hawk feathers? And then he wants to know what kind of material the arrowhead is made of. And then he also wants to know who threw the arrow at him and from what distance and then he wants to know why and by the time he has found all that out of course he dies so the simile is get to the purpose of the practice and don't ask the questions about the things that are there to be seen, but get to the point which will save you from dukkha. This arrow um, hitting the person is a very great dukkha, and uh, the doctor obviously would have been the Buddha, and the medicine, the Dhamma, he would have helped the man to get out of his dukkha, but he didn't allow it. He wanted to first get all the information, extraneous information about the whole matter before he would allow that this actual medicine could be used. And this is what he's telling Puttapada. He says, none of this, what you're asking me, any of these questions have any bearing on what we're doing. Do it. So, Potapada isn't ready to do anything, actually. He, he is still concerned with what's going on with the Buddha. He's very fascinated by the Buddha. Otherwise, he wouldn't be, you know, sticking around so long and asking these many questions. Um, and the Buddha has this feeling, obviously, that there is somebody who could, can be taught. And so we have this whole long sutta. Otherwise, we wouldn't have it. If Potapada hadn't asked all these somewhat, some of them are silly questions, um, we wouldn't have this whole sutta. And this is how many of the discourses arose. They arose because somebody asked questions. And uh, then <clears throat> if, it, uh, if the Buddha deemed it uh, uh, necessary or well done, he would give a whole discourse. So now he's telling him all these questions are not conducive to the purpose, to the Dhamma, to embarkation on the spiritual life, and does not lead to disenchantment, dispassion, cessation, calm, and higher knowledge. Disenchantment. Disenchantment is the very first step on the depend arriving which goes from Dukkha to Nibbana, the very first step that leads out of Dukkha. 
Now, that's a transcendental dependarizing. And that starts out with understanding one's own dukkha. And then comes confidence and, uh, in the teaching and then the joy of being able to practice. Then comes the meditation. And after the meditation, samadhi, comes as the next step, seeing things, the knowledge and vision of things as they really are. In other words, one sees, in sees, anicca dukkha nata, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and substancelessness. Any one of the three, not necessarily all three. And the next step after that, the effect of that is disenchantment. Disenchantment with the world. Now, that is the first step that leads us out of Dukkha. It's the very first step where we can see that within this world, we're never going to find what we're looking for. It doesn't matter how pretty it looks. Because one moment it looks pretty, and it's nice and sunny, and the next moment it's ice cold again and doesn't look pretty at all. And one moment, everything is nice in one's relationship, and the next moment the thing breaks apart. And there one has good food, and then one has to stop, because one is much too full. The whole thing is constantly falling apart. And if we're no longer searching for fulfillment in the world, we will then know that there is a way to transcend the world. Transcended in one's mind states doesn't mean physically. Buddha was enlightened at the age of 35. It's much nicer to become enlightened while one still is in one's body. One can at least enjoy the rest of the time without all this dukkha. But disenchantment is the first necessary step for real practice. Everything before that is getting to know the practice. When we still believe that if we find the right person, or if the right person will agree, or if we find the right place, the right job, the right place to live, whatever it is that we're believing in, it's going to do it for us. So long, we can't really practice wholeheartedly. Because we will. We will sit down and meditate a little, and then we will look for the right place, the right person, the right job, whatever it is that we believe in. So until we get to that point of disenchantment, our practice is going to be at least, say the least, half-hearted. And half-hearted practice brings half-hearted results. What else could it do? But when we have seen things as they really are, that we have to have this world because we have this body, and it needs to live in this world. It needs the oxygen. It needs the food. It needs the sunshine. It needs the rain. It needs all the things which make it possible to live. But that's about it. The inner fulfillment cannot come from the outer situation. You can't pipe it in. There's no pipeline. One can only have it within oneself. And that understanding, it takes a while. Some people come to it very quickly. Some people take a long time. And some people never come to it. It depends a lot upon our karmic resultants and also on our opportunities, which again are karmic resultants. So disenchantment does not mean that we dislike the world. It does not mean that we dislike the people in it. 
It does not mean that we dislike the food that's being offered. None of that. It's not disgust. Sometimes this word, unfortunately, is translated as disgust. And that's wrong. Because disgust is negative. And as soon as we have negativity within, our practice is already marred. To practice with negativity is most difficult and doesn't bring the proper results. So it's not disgust with the world at all. It's just disenchantment. One isn't enchanted anymore by the idea of all the things one can do with one's body and all the things one can relate to with one's mind and no longer looks for the absolute fulfillment from the worldly endeavors. Now, one only comes to that, of course, if one has tried enough. And that's why it's rare to come to that when one is very young. It also happens. It's not uh, totally out of the question. But there are people who actually know this when they're very young, but very few. Most of us have had to try it out first and find out what goes on in the world. And then having found that it doesn't do what we thought it was going to do, then we try to find a different path. When we've tried a lot of things out, it's, of course, much easier because we have our own personal experience which says, the rest of the stuff hasn't brought me total happiness. There must be another way. And then it's much easier to come to disenchantment. And yet, even when we come to meditation, that doesn't necessarily mean we've come to disenchantment. Many people come to meditation because they would like to add something nice to their lives. Well, the Buddha said in that case, it's better than not coming. It's not the, the ultimate reason, but at least it's reason to come. So he was happy for every person that came and asked questions. And here we have this very succinct and direct <clears throat> response which says don't think about all these external things think about how you get to disenchantment now if we have come to meditation because we want to add something nice to our lives that too will eventually work for us if the meditation works if we can see in the meditation, in the jhanas, that there's a totally different level of consciousness available to a very ordinary person, to each ordinary person, and then we may actually understand that what the world offers us is like fool's gold. It glitters, but it doesn't have any value. When we take it to the assayer, he won't pay a thing for it. It's totally valueless. But it glitters nicely. Women are beautiful. Men are handsome. The weather is sometimes good. The food is delicious. The music sounds great. The books are interesting. But we haven't got a pipeline. It can't go in. It's all out there. And one has to know that from one's own experience. And because it's like fool's gold and glitters very nicely, one is constantly tempted. And that temptation, it's called Mara, M-A-R-A, which in our language, would be the devil. But that's Mara, 
within. We're constantly tempted, not only because it all looks very nice, but because everybody else seems to think that they're going to find their happiness within the worldly conditions. <coughs> and some people actually smiling, and some people seem to have it made. They're doing fine. So one wonders, why are they doing fine and I'm not? Maybe I should do what they're doing, and then we try that. If we try too long, we're going to miss the opportunity in this lifetime. Because to get to dispassion is already a quite a lengthy way of practice. And it's only the very first step. The Buddha mentions the other steps. And the next one, he mentions all of them, but the next one, after the disenchantment, comes the dispassion. Now, the dispassion is already the springboard to go towards the actual Nibbanic experience. Now, dispassion means that our disenchantment has become strong enough so that when greed and hate arise, we are able to drop them immediately. It doesn't mean that we've lost them. One only loses greed and hate completely one step before enlightenment. And even then, it hovers in the background. While it doesn't disturb anymore, it's still there to be known in the background. Only the Arahant, the enlightened one, is completely safe. But the disenchantment leads to dispassion. It leads to no longer trying to grasp and cling and trying no longer to reject and resist. Although, as I said, at this stage, there still is that underlying tendency there, we can drop it because we have seen the truth. And only if we can drop it, at least for the time of practice, only then can we continue on that way. These are enormously uh, great steps that we can take, but they are dependent upon and I'm going to repeat that. They're going to be, they are dependent upon the recognition of our own dukkha. If we haven't recognized it, if we think we've got it made, we just want to add a little meditation to our lives, we won't get anywhere near disenchantment. We might have to have a little more dukkha and then maybe get to disenchantment. So if your recognition of dukkha within our lives, which does not mean that there has to be a tragedy, it's the constant feeling of restlessness, anxiety, disquiet, dis-ease, non-ease. The mind is not totally at ease. That's dukkha. It doesn't have to be anything great. It's just that. Having seen the dukkha, confidence in the teaching arises. Confidence in the teaching means that one can commit oneself. Committing oneself to trying to find out whether what the Buddha said was really true. Find out for oneself. Neither make an assumption that it's true, nor make an assumption that it's not true. A commitment to find out for oneself on all levels that he talked about. 
With that comes the joy, the joy of being able to do something which goes far beyond worldly endeavors. It is actually transcending every worldly endeavor that we've ever made. And the joy of that makes it possible to meditate. On the transcendental depend arising, the next steps are the meditative absorptions. And then comes seeing things in their right perspective. Knowledge and vision. Knowledge and vision, I've mentioned that before. It's the understood experience. It's experiencing whatever we are experiencing now, all the time, but understanding it. Understanding it in a way which goes far beyond anything that we need in daily life. In daily life, we get away with the minimum. Just like one gets away reading a newspaper with a minimum of language skill. One thousand words of a language are totally sufficient to read a newspaper. But what's in a newspaper? So our everyday life does not require from us any profound insight. All it requires is that we handle things fairly efficiently. But when we have the wish to be on a spiritual path, then our understood experience goes into much deeper and profounder understanding. We see impermanence as a way of life. We are impermanence. And seeing ourselves as impermanence makes a big difference to just accepting the fact that everything is impermanent or just accepting the fact that each breath is impermanent but seeing oneself as impermanent and also recognizing again and again this underlying disquiet in mind and heart and recognizing that we're constantly trying to find a cause for it It's somebody else's fault that there is disquiet in the mind. We forget completely that that other person has exactly the same disquiet and is exactly doing what we're doing. We forget that. We think it must be somebody. I would like to be nice and peaceful. Why am I? It must be because... And then we've got a list of becauses, or we've got one big because, or a whole list of little ones. None of that goes into the depth of our being. All of that stays on the surface. So when we realize at least that impermanence and dukkha, and see it wherever we look, And this is a very important thing to do, to look at it outside of oneself as well as inside of oneself. Every tree, every leaf, every bush, every blade of grass speaks loudly of impermanence. Every single day is totally imbued with impermanence. Maybe we have one of those little clocks, digital clocks. Well, have a look at it. How impermanent can one get? And we go with that digital clock. We always have the idea that the digital clock is moving and we are standing still. Have another look at it. It's impossible that that is so. We are just like that clock. We're going with it. So when we have those understandings of impermanence and of dukkha, then comes 
the first step. Now, the Buddha is not talking about any steps before disenchantment because he's talking to an ascetic, a wanderer, uh, who obviously has already embarked upon the spiritual life. So he's not trying to tell him um, anything that is ahead of the disenchantment. He has already told him about the meditation that he's already taught him. And he's already taught him about morality. So he assumes most likely that he has joy on the spiritual path and that he has already looked to see what is there and what is impermanent or permanent. And so he starts out with telling him about disenchantment. And the next step, dispassion. Now dispassion is already a step of great impact. And without the previous steps, one can't possibly get there. All of these are cause and effect. And sometimes one lets go of a certain desire and one gets the idea that one has already attained dispassion. And then one is quite surprised when the next desire arises. Letting go of one desire is fine, is very important, but it's still practicing it. It's not being rid of passion. And we need to practice. Now, when I told you the story about Vachagotta and the fire he made, when there was no more no more firewood to be thrown onto the fire, the fire went out. No more fuel for the passions. Sometimes people who hear that say, but I like my passions, I like to keep them. Potapada doesn't say that, but he could have. He's certainly not imbued with the understanding of the teaching yet. So if one thinks one likes one's passions and one likes to stick to them, one has to just wait till there is a change. It may be in this life, next life, ten lives from now, hundred lives from now, who knows. It could be next day, ten days from now. One doesn't know. The change comes in the mind. The mind sees things differently. The better the meditation works, the clearer the mind can see the reality in which we live. We live in a reality which practically everybody makes up to be something that they would like it to be. And then they wonder why they're not totally happy. Because the way we make things up, the way we like them to be, they will never be. They can't be bought. If they could be bought, every rich person would be totally and utterly happy. It's never yet happened. Some of them are so desperately unhappy that they commit suicide. It's not something that's available on the marketplace. And we probably know that underlying it all. But are we acting upon it? You see, what we know and what we do is often miles apart. And this is a very important aspect of the spiritual life. What we actually know, we've got to act upon. If we don't act upon it, we might as well not know it. It's not really making any changes in us. This passion, as an enormously um, important step on this path, is now said to lead to cessation, to calm, to higher knowledge. This is a different expression from the usual transcendental dependent arising. And the cessation is the cessation of perception that he's talking about. 
in this sutta to Potapada. It's a states of jhana and the highest jhanas to come to higher knowledge. Now, all of that has its origin in this fashion. As long as the mind has hate and greed, it can't go beyond itself. It's caught in its own whirlpool of reaction. And that whirlpool, many people can feel that in their heads, so to say. It whirls around. It turns in a circle over and over again. Is it this or is it that? Is it not this? Is it not that? Just like Potapada does. He's got a whirlpool of ideas. And it goes around and around. So if there is still, and there is, hate and greed in everyone, and if that comes to the fore in the meditation, there's no way there can be calm. There's no way we can come to the different cessations of consciousness which we have already heard about. And no way the mind can become calm. It's too connected to the world. A calm mind has to find a way to look at the world as a necessary foundation for the body, but not as something that is happiness-bringing or anything that one needs to concern oneself with until a moment comes when somebody confronts one with something, then one has to concern oneself. But not if one meditates. Nobody's going to confront one with anything, hopefully, when one meditates. So we need to step out of the whirlpool, which greed and hate make arise, and then we have the ability for the higher jhanas also, the calm, the higher knowledge. Now, the higher knowledge, as it is mentioned here, the Pali word is not there. One imagines that he's talking about Abhinyana and Abhihaya Jnana knowledge, and primarily it concerns the loss of our hindrances and underlying tendencies. It um, also has some other connotations, but they are not that important. The important part is that because we have gone this way, the hindrances dissolve to the extent that they no longer are an obstruction on our pathway. And the next thing is it leads to enlightenment to Nibbana. So all this goes the whole way. This is typical of the Buddha's discourses. He usually starts with what we should be doing in our everyday life and then shows the way to Nibbana, all the way. Of course, we have to do first, the first steps, first things first. And having done the first steps, we can then, of course, go along with the rest. Now, mostly, people who want to meditate want to just sit down and meditate and want to become really nice and calm and blissful. And that would be nice. But if all the rest is missing, it's a forlorn hope. It doesn't work. The rest's got to be there too. So if we have a lengthy time like this one, we can work on all the rest of it. The guarding of the senses, the mindfulness, the contentment, the letting go of the hindrances 
before the meditation time. We can address all that. And as we address all that, obviously, there will be results from that. So he's giving Potapada the answer that he's not answering any of these questions because they are not conducive to the purpose of attaining Nibbana. They have nothing to do with their spiritual life. The Buddha had four ways of answering questions. The first way was with yes or no. Second way was with a lengthy explanation, like in the Sutta. The third way with a counter question, which also happens here, eventually. And then the fourth way by saying nothing. But here, he doesn't just say nothing. He tells Potapada why he's not answering. And then Potapada asks him another question. The Buddha has said several times now that he has not declared this, nor has he declared that. And none of it is conducive to the spiritual path. So now Potapada says quite rightly, well, what have you declared? After all, you are our teacher, so what have you declared? So the Buddha says, Potapada, I have declared, this is suffering. This is the origin of suffering. This is the cessation of suffering. And this is the path leading to the cessation of suffering. The Four Noble Truths. The essence of the Buddha's teaching. And he's leading Potapada back to them because Potapada has gone too far astray. He's gone off on tangents which are not helpful. And so he's leading him back to the Four Noble Truths. The Four Noble Truths are the enlightenment statement of the Buddha which he stated when he was sitting under the famous Bodhi tree in what's today Bodhgaya and had done his meditation, had gone, gone from the first jhana to the eighth and back down to the first and had been sitting there for a week and he then saw these four noble truths and realized that that was the answer. And the very first discourse that he ever gave, the Dhamma Chakra Pavadana Sutta. Dhamma Chakra is the, the wheel of the Dhamma. And uh, Pavadana is the turning. So it's the turning of the wheel of the Dhamma Sutta. He gave, after his enlightenment, to his five friends with whom he had studied together at the uh, two meditation teachers. And one of them, after hearing the discourse, became enlightened. And the others later. And these five were the first Buddhist monks. They became the disciples and followed the Buddha. So he's leading, he's leading Potapada back to the essence. He's saying, none of this is any help. Just get back to the essence. Now we have talked about the Four Noble Truths in the first week here. And the Four Noble Truths have many aspects which we can look at. The third one we don't need to discuss. We just need to attain. But the fourth one, the Noble Eightfold Path, is the pathway. And that pathway is divided into three parts, Sila, Samadhi, and Panya, morality, concentration, and wisdom. And all three are addressed in this discourse to Potapada. Concentration aspect, as far as the jhanas are concerned, the wisdom aspect, as far as the difficulty of recognizing the self as not being anything is addressed. Potapada is still of the opinion that there is a self and he's going to come out with it again. He hasn't changed his mind yet. 
And actually, he doesn't change his mind until the end of the discourse, but he does become the disciple of the Buddha because he probably has seen that he wants to find out. And the morality part was at the beginning. All of the teaching always contains all three. Without one of them or the other, it's incomplete. Any spiritual teaching that's worth following needs to contain all three. Morality, concentration, and wisdom. We can say that instead of the word concentration, which is usually used to translate samadhi, we can say tranquility, serenity, calm, any one of these words. Because the calm mind can gain wisdom. So now the Buddha has got Puttapada back on track. And he says, and Puttapada says, he's full of questions. He says, but Lord, why has the Lord declared this? He's not a very good student, is he? We can do much better than that. And the Buddha says, because Potapada, this is conducive to the purpose, conducive to the Dhamma, the way to embark on the holy life. In other words, I've just told you that. I'm just repeating it again, he says. It leads to disenchantment, to dispassion, to cessation, to calm, to higher knowledge, to enlightenment, to Nibbana. That is why I have declared it. So he's just repeating the whole thing over again because Potapada evidently hadn't really caught on to what was going on. And uh, so very patiently tells him the whole thing again. And now Potapada finally gets it. And he says, so it is, Lord, so it is. And now is the time for the blessed Lord to do as he sees fit. And then the Lord rose from his seat and went away. He could tell that Potapada finally understood that the only the things which are conducive to one's spiritual development are useful to inquire to. And the most useful is to know the Four Noble Truths and to experience them within oneself. The first two can constantly be experienced. And I would like to repeat, I have said it before, but I'd like to repeat it. Buddha repeats himself, so I can repeat also. That it's very helpful to find out the truth of the first two noble truths. Have I got dukkha? And am I trying to blame an outside source? For my dukkha? Have I got any inkling that there's something outside of me that is actually causing me this dukkha? Or am I completely convinced and have experienced that I'm causing my dukkha? It's a very important question. If we can't answer it properly, we have to keep asking it. There couldn't be anything more important. Who's causing my dukkha? We can rationalize that. Nobody's interested in causing me dukkha. Nobody cares enough to cause me dukkha. There aren't enough people knowing me to cause me dukkha. Any kind of rationalization, but it doesn't help. We have to find that we are causing it ourselves. And when we have found it, that we are causing it, then we can go to the second noble truth and drop whatever it is we are craving. And we will see immediately. For the moment of dropping the craving, the dukkha is all gone. Now let's say our craving is nothing gross. It's something very nice and fine. We would like to have a good meditation. And we keep on thinking like that. Can we meditate? Of course not. 
nothing happens at all, as long as we think I want it. All that happens is dukkha. Now drop the wanting. Just let it go. Forget it. I'm here to enjoy the forest. Okay, I'll sit down and when everybody sits down, I'll also sit down and I cross my legs and just be there. But I don't want anything. And watch how nicely it works. No dukkha. I'm just there. Anyone can do that. Even if our mind is still a whirlpool. Anyone can drop the craving for a moment or two and become aware of the great relief which that provides. It's a moment of truth. It's like losing a burden as if one had been carrying a hundred-pound backpack and finally can put it down. Gone. Obviously, the untrained mind brings it right back, but we can drop it again and again and again. And as we drop it again and again, we will not only become quite efficient at dropping our craving, but we will see the results. Expansiveness, openness, ease, lightness, meditation. Dropping one's craving. Now, the craving, of course, concerns both. It concerns wanting to have and wanting to get rid of. And Having any kind of dukkha in the mind makes meditation impossible. Drop it. It's not worth it. There isn't anybody else making dukkha except oneself. By the same token, we can make ourselves also happy. We've got both abilities, but we've got to first drop whatever it is that we've got in mind that we want. And anybody who's done it knows the relief that comes from it. Of course, one has to do it more than once. One has to do it over and over again. But that's fine. Dukkha is also over and over again. So we drop it over and over. Having ascertained that the first and second noble truths are both true, we might be able to accept the fact that the third one is also true, even though <clears throat> we have no personal recognition of it. Nibbana is. So we just accept that. We don't want to have any argumentation or a debate about it. We have seen the first two are true, so we can accept that the third one is true until we can check it out ourselves. And then we use the fourth one for our pathway. And of course we are concerned with the third part of the Noble Eightfold Path. Right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And we have very little chance to not follow the second part of it, which is right speech, right action, right livelihood, while we're here. There's very little chance that we should (coughs) do anything wrong in those respects. Speech is minimal, and action is minimal, and livelihood is not a topic. So... The only thing that happens are our thoughts. The only thing that could go wrong on that level. So, are we having a look at the thoughts? Are we careful with them? Do we know that we don't have to have negative thoughts? We don't have to have 
contrary thoughts. We don't have to have craving thoughts. We can drop or substitute. That's our only possibility for going wrong on that part of the Noble Eightfold Path. And of course then we have the first part of it, which is the wisdom part. Right view and right intention. Right intention is obvious. Wanting to meditate is right intention. There's no question about it. So we need not even have any (coughs) particular um, effort for that. Because that is where the right effort is. But right view, that's a different story. That's what Potapada has so much trouble with. And he's going to get back to the same problem he had before with all the different selves that he postulates. So, right view has different connotations. In its deepest aspect, it means right view of self. But in its beginning aspects, it means the right view that Thought, speech, and action. We make karma with all three, with our three doors, and we get the results. That's one right view. And the second right view we obviously have, that we want to transcend this strictly worldly mentality through the spiritual path and learning and through the meditation. So we have many of the aspects of the Noble Eightfold Path actually working for us in such a retreat as this. They're working for us automatically. Now, the only things that we need to do, well, they're not just only, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And that's what we're left with, those three. Now, obviously, we're making effort, there's no doubt about it. But are we mindful outside of the meditation? Are we paying attention to our thoughts and their content? Are we paying attention to our body movement? Are we actually doing that? Because that keeps the mind in check. That keeps the mind quiet that keeps the mind in its spot. And it is the purification for the mind. And right concentration, well, everybody knows their own difficulties with that. But the more we let go of wanting, and the more we allow ourselves to be open and at ease, and giving ourselves wholeheartedly to the meditation, not wanting anything from it, the easier it is. If we give ourselves to it and are just open and at ease and not trying to grab something, and also not follow in Potapada's footsteps. He is not uh, in this um, sutta because what he's doing and the way he's uh, asking uh, of the Buddha is um, useful, but to show us what is useful and what is not. And it's interesting because there are (coughs) stories where Brahmins, who were the spiritual teachers in India and still are, go on in long uh, discussions and discourses about whether the world is eternal or not, and whether the world is finite or not, and whether the soul is the same as the body. And yet, when we look at that, we realize none of that could help us at all. wouldn't make any difference it wouldn't get us concentrated. On the contrary, it would again create more 
discursive thinking. And that's why the Buddha denies it. Denies it completely and shows Potapada, whom he knows to be a potential holy man, shows him what's important. The Buddha did this over and over again, showing the pathway to one person whom he knew had the ability to actually go on that path. And of course, showing it to Potapada was also useful in such a way that Potapada had followers, but they're not agreeing with this. We'll hear about that tomorrow. They're, they get angry at him. They don't like it at all, what Potapada is doing. So um, it's... Um, if we can translate the words into our daily language, we can see that the Buddha is really addressing us and uh, addressing us in a way which will bring about, possibly, a strengthening of one's purpose. Do we actually know our purpose?